ACNFers, shout out to Athletic Brewing. That dry January time is fast approaching. And you might want to give it a go. I don't know. I, it's up to you. Delicious stuff. I'm a brand ambassador. I get no money. They're not officially a sponsor of the show. I just want to get the word out there. Go to athleticbrewing.com. Use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout. And you'll get a nice little discount. Also, I haven't done this in a while, but I'm happy to bring it back into the fray. Since I have a teensy bit more time on my hands, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I will give you a complimentary edit of a piece of your writing up to 2,000 words. Once your review posts, usually within 24 hours, send me a screenshot of your review to creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll reach out to you, and we'll get started. Who knows? If you like the experience, you might even want to do something more ambitious with me. I'd love to help you get where you want to go. Hey, CNF, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? It's that atavistian time of the month, so you know, spoiler alerts, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast, of course, but maybe head over to magazine.atavist.com and fork over 25 clams for a year's subscription. No, I don't get kickbacks, so you know it's worth it. Like nothing sexy about writing, right? You're just like hunched over a computer drinking lukewarm coffee, trying to like Jedi mind trick yourself <laughs> into getting over your neuroses to put some words on the page. That's Sarah Suli. Her piece, A Matter of Honor, is this month's and here's the deck of the story. Why were three Afghan women murdered at the edge of Europe? A journey from Mazar-i-Sharif to Istanbul to Athens in search of answers. Sarah's a writer after my heart. Panic sweats, puffy-eyed at the computer, squeezing words out of the rock that is our brains. I know you'll dig this one. We talk about our ambitious peace being assertive, wrangling the reporting, and managing the lulls between when she started this piece uh, three and a half years ago to wrapping up just a few weeks ago. Uh, sure, in that three and a half years, it wasn't like an everyday thing, so there was a lot of hurry up and wait. Hurry up, report fast, and then wait. Lots of good things to unpack to fully immerse yourself in this atavist story. All right, a little housekeeping first. Show notes to this episode and a billion others are at brendanomero.com. <laughs> there you may also sign up to my Up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Put a lot of effort into a kick-ass newsletter that entertains, I like to think, gives you value, I like to think, and invites you to a monthly 40-minute happy hour, which uh, is just my way of sticking it to the algorithm, like right up the algorithm's keister. If that's your thing, go ahead and sign up. First of the month, no spam, as far as I can tell can't beat it. And also, there's a hat going around. You might want to consider going to patreon.com slash cnfpod. Helps keep the lights on at cnfpod HQ. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. Deeply grateful to the 20 patrons, but I'd love to build the community even more so we can get the show in front of more CNFers. So we can all feel a little less shitty in the end. And we all just want to feel less shitty. Okay, before we get to Sarah... I speak with Sayward Darby, editor-in-chief of The Atavist, author of Sisters in Hate, 
and dog photographer to the stars about the editor side of the table of this month's piece written by Sarah Suli. Are you ready? I think you're ready by this point. Let's do it. Riff. This story, like what uh, what struck you about it when it came across your desk? It's an it's a you know devastatingly sad story, but I think too that you know we've heard, we've read, heard, seen so many stories about migrants in the Mediterranean, you know, struggling to get to Europe, being treated really terribly, um, you know, at European borders. And what was striking about this is that it sort of defied some of the stereotypes. Um, you know, it was a murder investigation. Um, and, you know, it's about these these three women who, you know, struggled to to make it where they wanted to make it. And then someone literally slit their throats. So the question, you know, immediately becomes like who, but also why? And because of where it happened, like the geopolitical complexity, right? Like they were barely over the border into Europe. And they had come from Turkey. Turkey and Greece do not get along on any number <laughs> of fronts. And so it was just this, um, you know, true crime story tied up with all of these international forces, which were made even more complex as Sarah reported the story, because Afghanistan, where these women were from, you know, obviously fell to the Taliban again in 2021. So I was really struck by how it was a crime story inside of, I think we describe it in the story as, you know, a needle in a geopolitical haystack, trying to solve a crime, which under pretty much any circumstances, you know, is going to be a challenge. Um, but then add to it the fact of where it happened, who it happened to, when it happened. And it just becomes this just a very, very unique story, like unlike anything I had ever read. And when you're receiving pitches and you know, for, for stories, you know, be it like this one or something else, you know, how much, how much legwork and how much pre-reporting or actual reporting do you like to see before you're like, oh yeah, let's pursue this kind of a story? Yeah. I mean, in this case, Sarah had, um, if I recall correctly, you know, she had a good contact at the Greek police, um, namely the woman who, you know, had spearheaded the investigation for a time. And uh, she also had uh, grant support. Um, and so she had, you know, found support to really, uh, you know, do this reporting, not in a short time frame, you know, over a long time frame. And so, you know, to be clear, like we compensated her like we do any other writer, but yeah. we also knew she had these additional resources if she needed them. And so I think the combination of who she had access to and the trust they clearly had in her. Um, and then also the, the resources that she had mustered, obviously combined with, you know, what we found interesting about the story itself, um, you know, made sense to us. I, I think, you know, it's important in this case, because we do, you know, we run a decent number of crime stories. And I think that Sarah and I, like one thing we, we talked about extensively over the years, because she's been working on this for so long, it was highly unlikely she was ever going to, you know, slam dunk solve this triple murder. Um, and so one thing we talked about the whole time was, you know, what is this act? What is the combination of access resources and your dedication? Like, what can we, what can we show with that? What, what can the narrative be here? And so, uh, you know, I should say going into it, it wasn't in, you know, in other cases, um, 
A Crime Beyond Belief, um, which obviously you've talked to um, a writer about a uh, girl in the picture, you know, cases in which, you know, crimes have been solved. This was something very different. And I think that, um, you know, Sarah's sort of first person work was one of the things that we knew was going to set this apart from the beginning. Yeah. Then you then you get a story like, you know, Patrick Radden Keith say nothing where he kind of like accidentally solves the murder at it like he just like late in the process too of him just kind of going through his notes he's just like um oh my god I think this might have happened and then all of a sudden there's Mm -hmm. lawyers involved from like Ireland England and America it's like oh my god it's like yeah I mean it's I mean say nothing is such a fantastic book and you know one of the best structured nonfiction books I've ever read. Um, and Patrick Redden Keith is tremendous. Um, just so talented. And I think we all wish we could be Patrick Redden Keith, oh, but yes. I, but I also think, you know, that's such an interesting, you know, that was such a high profile, you know, writing about the troubles, you know, well-known figures, um, people for whom, you know, there were a lot of like records and, you know, people who could speak to them and, um, or speak of them. And in some ways, like, Sarah's story is almost like a through the looking glass. Maybe that's the wrong metaphor, but we'll just run with it Um, through the looking glass version of this, where it's like this terrible thing has happened to people who like no one really cares about. Um, Obviously their loved ones do, but the people whose job it is to actually figure out what happened to them don't, don't much care. And so, uh, you know, again, it's that needle in a haystack kind of, thing which you know the, the the odds were very much against her they were obviously against Patrick as well <laughs> um you know solving a, a long a long ago crime um but but I I think there's something very poignant about almost kind of trying to do the same thing with people with subjects I should say who no one otherwise no one would ever know about no one would ever know their names and and I think you know they're the, the really beautiful part of this story too is you know we we read so many crime stories about you know a person in the mid when we publish these stories you know someone in the midwest who's murdered and you know who did it and why and how terrible and you know that person was a mother that person was a father you know whatever it may be and you know what's what's different about this is purely context you know these are people with loved ones with lives with hopes with dreams aspirations you know all of all of these things and nobody's ever going to with the exception in this case of Sarah you know turn their attention to that story in the way they would you know I don't know a mom in Missouri or whatever and uh and I think there's something really like courageous poignant I mean you could use any number of words about Sarah saying I kind of I want to do the same kind of reporting one would do in a story we're more used to hearing. Um, And to be clear, those stories are incredibly worthy. Again, we've published many of them, but I think, you know, despite some of the, the like rougher edges of a story like this, um, I think there's something just really beautiful about saying, I want to try, I want to, I want to try to tackle this. And I mean, man, she had an incredible break. Like I don't, again, I don't want to give anything away, but I mean, her pounding the pavement, talking to random people, you know, hoping to find a lead. It seems like she's never going to get one. It seems like she's never going to get one. And then she does. And it's a big one, you know, and it's a really impressive thing. And, uh, and, you know, that alone is, is, I think, worth documenting. And when you're 
editing a piece, any piece, you know, what are some common, let's say, potholes that, you know, you're driving along and you and you hit and you're like, oh, we need to figure out a way to like kind of patch that up. What are what are some of those that come across when you're reading? Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to generalize, I guess, because every piece has <laughs> different kinds of potholes. You know, I think in this case, there were any number of challenges. Um, I mean, Sarah, you know, started reporting this in... 2019, I want to say, maybe even a little earlier, the women were killed in 2018, you know, but she really started following the story soon after that. And, you know, just think about all of the events that have happened in the world since then. She wanted to go to Afghanistan to talk to these women's families and, uh, or to their family, it's a mother and two daughters, and couldn't because of the, the pandemic. And then, you know, even at a point where it was like, maybe you can travel because vaccines, you know, Afghanistan essentially becomes a war zone. I mean, it's always been a war zone, but, you know, obviously the, the Taliban is back in power. Um, and so, you know, in, in this case, it was kind of dealing with potholes, to use your word, that, like, it wasn't as though Sarah hadn't, you know, done her job. It wasn't as though, you know, there was some loose end, you know, that we just hadn't tugged. It was like, oh, the world is burning. <laughs> How are we going to figure out how to keep telling this story. And I think it's very, very unique in that way. I mean, I will say this is kind of a diversion, but, you know, I, I think, or digression, not diversion, sorry, digression um, is the word I need coffee, Brendan. Um, the a digression is that I'm, you know, it's been really interesting since the beginning of 2020, watching the ways in which COVID has affected so many of our stories. From the standpoint, not only of, you know, where can you go? What can you report? Which was certainly, you know, especially the case for the first year or so, but you know, how it's literally shaped narratives, um, you know, subjects who've gotten COVID, um, court, you know, rule or rulings that have happened, you know, later than expected because of COVID. Um, I mean, you know, last year we ran Invisible Kid by Maddie Kroll, which went on to, you know, do incredibly well and was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. And it's about this guy getting out of prison where he thought he was going to spend his life the day that like his city goes into lockdown. And I think that in this case, you know, it's we 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 meet these women's members of this these women's family on WhatsApp because, you know, doing a WhatsApp video was everything Sarah could do at that point to be able to communicate with people in a place that she she had hoped to travel to. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily, it, it's really, again, really hard to generalize about potholes because I feel like, you know, every story has different ones. Absolutely no story is perfect. And, you know, part of a job as an editor is to yes, patch over, but actually I think it's more about going around and pointing to them. I'm, I'm a big fan of saying, you know, Hey, in the story, let's not act like this isn't a problem. Like, let's acknowledge that it's a problem um, because I think it's more honest. Um, I think, you know, having a really, really polished story that like conveniently ignores some of the, you know, obstacles or pitfalls or whatever that, um, you know, a writer dealt with. I mean, awesome. I'm so glad it reads nice, but I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily trust stories like that. And um, And I think in this case, you know, Sarah did a really nice job of using that first person to, you know, express frustration and anxiety about some of the obstacles she encountered along the way. Um, and not every story requires that. Um, but just generally speaking, you know, to me, it's about seeing the pothole and not falling into it, not 
it, not about, you know, kind of, well, how can we hop over this as though it's not there or, you know, put something in its place to act as though it's not there. Um, it's, it's, it's more about sort of acknowledging the reality of the situation. Fantastic. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to get to pick your brain about your side of the table on these stories. And uh, we're going to kick it over to Sarah in just a moment. So uh, Sayward, as always, a pleasure. And thanks for making the time. Always, always happy to do this. Thanks so much, Brendan. All right. It is almost time to feature Sarah Suli, but here's a little more about her. Okay. She's a freelance journalist currently based in Athens, Greece, after several years in Tunis. She writes about politics, people, and places, often in combination. She was previously a staff writer for Colors Magazine and Treviso. Though it doesn't seem like it, she does occasionally travel outside the Mediterranean. She's also the author of Moon Guides, Athens, and the Greek Islands. Came out April 2020. Athens and the Greek Islands. She would know a thing or two about them. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a BA in political science. Smart. She works in French and English and can order sandwiches in four more languages with varying success. That's wicked smart, kid. All right. Enough of my bumbling, rumbling, rambling. Here is Sarah Suli. Huh. And that's a good life philosophy, right? Like, sometimes you just have to show up. That's all that it takes. Oh, 100%. And I think that um, it really just dovetails wonderfully into talking about writing because I I think we we largely, um, especially in the United States, we kind of value precocity and the genius of youth. And we don't really value, like, the long haul. Uh, and mm. perseverance as, as much as we like because it's not, not as sexy. So um, I think it's just really wonderful to hear you say that, that it's sometimes it's, uh, it, it is, it's like being patient and enduring and just getting incrementally better over time is really what's going to sustain you over the long time, not like a flash in the pan. Yeah, well, there's also just like nothing sexy about writing, right? You're just like <laughs> right. hunched over a computer drinking lukewarm coffee trying to like Jedi mind trick yourself <laughs> into getting over your neuroses to put some words on the page. I feel like that's the great fallacy also in the US that we like try to make it this whole seductive thing, but it's it's not. I mean, it's very individualistic and uh it's a very weird practice also, I guess. Anytime I see ads on like Instagram for like, you know, be a a professional writer or something, it's always it's usually like a woman in a cabin overlooking a lake and just like it looks so romantic and everything. I'm like, this is just so not the image of what it really is of just like getting up and just puffy eyed shit everywhere on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like there's no panic in someone's face. Like I need to see panic in someone's face That's to believe. True. I want the, res- the residue of a panic attack, you know, like that sweat uh, the suffering on their face, the bills for therapy. Yeah, all of that is missing. <laughs> exactly. And not that like, you know, and not that writing is torture, but it, it certainly is is difficult, especially when you get into the kind of reporting that, that you're doing. Like it is, you know, it is not fun to write about, you know, a triple murder, uh, you know, on the border between, you know, wherever, you know, 
Uh, where, where was the boat? Is it between Turkey and Greece or for, yeah, for your so, piece? Yeah. yeah, so the yeah. region is called Evros, uh, and that's the region between Greece and Turkey. Yeah, so it's just like to that to that point when you know you're going to be like cranking on a story of this nature. It's not like you know you're. It's not like you're you are uh, swollen with joy when something like that happens. You're like ah, this is I got to crank this out. I got to do justice to this story. Um, it's not romantic, but it, it, but it is the work. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I felt a little differently like this was one of the rare instances where the writing felt like the easiest part of the whole process just Mm. because the reporting was so I I was so out of my depths at so many moments in the reporting um, and really felt like I was taking on roles and responsibilities that I had never had to before like even when doing other vaguely investigative work Um, This was like deep infiltration, uh, not just into people's personal lives, um, but also sort of following a trail that the police had covered up to a certain point, and then realizing that there was a lot to explore beyond what the police had done and just sort of venturing out on my own. In a lot of ways, I had no business doing any of that. Like I'm not a trained investigator or a police officer, nothing like this. And so in the reporting of the story, I found myself in situations where often I was just like, what, what am I doing? I need, I should be behind a desk. (laughs) That's what I should be doing, writing. Like, where am I? What am I doing? So I would say the writing part uh, was actually a bit easier during, for this particular story and in this whole process. Yeah. How did you navigate, as you say, like the, the reporting part that was like, as you say, like out of your depth, like how, how did you process that and try to find some degree of comfort in, in it because it was what you had to do? I guess the first thing is journalism, especially when you take a piece of this size or a, a reportage of, of this depth and breadth, it's never like an individual thing. There's, it's always so much more collaborative. Uh, And I would not have been able to do what I did without the support from my Afghan colleagues. So I worked with a couple because this was a project that I did over three and a half years. And at various points, I worked with a couple of different people, most of whom have asked to remain anonymous, just given sort of the nature of the reporting that we did um, and sort of the precariousness of the political situation in Afghanistan right now. But there's no way that I could have done what I did without the people that I worked with, in particular, Huega, uh, who is credited um, on the piece. Um, she's an amazing Afghan journalist from Kabul, who's now actually um, studying in California, and she's brilliant. I mean, I couldn't travel to Afghanistan because it was COVID, and I remember I had it was March 2020, uh, and we all remember that time, right? Oh, and yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had decided, like, okay, now's the time to go to Afghanistan. And I remember I went to go meet um, my grant manager, and we were talking, and he was like, yeah, you know, this COVID thing, like, probably just a few weeks, it'll blow over, and, like, you can go to Afghanistan in April. Uh, and that obviously <laughs> did not turn out. Um, at the time, also, I think Afghanistan had one of the worst cases of COVID uh, in the world. Um, And so at some point I realized, okay, the situation is not going to get better. There's no way I can travel. I need to really rethink how I'm going to report this from Afghanistan. Uh, And so I worked with a journalist that had been recommended to me, Huega, 
uh, by a couple of different colleagues. And she traveled to Mazari Sharif, which is where Fahima and her daughters are from. And we were basically just on a WhatsApp video call for like 12 hours a day for 10 days. Um, Mm. And, you know, I could never have done that without her. Or when I was in Turkey, for example, in Istanbul, I think that's, there were various moments, you know, where we're meeting with smugglers or we're meeting with Saeed, who sort of becomes like the central character in this story, where I was just surrounded by people who are much more perceptive and smarter than me and could tell me like, okay, Sarah, this is a sort of uncomfortable or potentially dangerous situation. We shouldn't do this or we can do this. Um, and, and that was really how I was able to navigate it. Yeah. And there, there are moments too in the, in the reporting where you are, you know, where you you inject yourself into the, into the piece. And one, one moment in particular that I found particularly uh, I just, sort of brave and even harrowing was when you confront uh, Saeed with the pictures of uh, the three slain family members, uh, the mother and the two daughters. And, um, and like, you know, you just run up with the, you know, the picture in front. And it was just like, I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is like truly uh, almost like a carnal moment. And uh, I was just like, where did, where did that, you know, that come from where you, as someone for me who doesn't have much of a backbone, I'm like, holy shit, like she is really going after it here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, one thing I realized in, I mean, I had a lot of people over the years, like my family members or people who were close to me be like, aren't you scared? Like you should be more scared. This is dangerous, all of this. And again, I never put myself because of the people that I worked with. I was never in situations that were like extremely, extremely uh, dangerous. And one thing that I realized in Afghanistan that, or sorry, in Turkey, that really broke my heart, actually, even if I'm talking to someone who's like a human trafficker, or potentially a, a murderer, they're much more scared of you than you are of them. There are a couple of layers to that. One of them is that Turkey doesn't recognize Afghans as legal refugees. So everyone's situation is quite precarious. And there's just a lot of mistrust when it comes to journalists in general. So I never personally felt uh, like I was in danger. But again, I was with Tabshir, who's a amazing, like one of the best journalists I've ever worked with. Um, and I felt quite safe being with him as a man. I think if I was alone as a woman, I probably wouldn't have done that. And the confrontation with Said, which actually in terms of writing was the most difficult for me to write. And I think with Sayward, we edited it several times. Uh, it's just really hard to write action in a way that doesn't feel cheesy. It was such an intense and cinematic moment because at that point I'd been reporting for, I think this was last year, so it would have been two, two and a half years. And I was just pissed, honestly. Like I had all of this information, I had all of these leads and it was all pointing towards this one person. And so when I finally had a chance to meet him, I was just filled with anger. And also the shop was very well lit. So I didn't feel like particularly uh, dangerous. But at that point, I had just done so much, so much reporting um, and felt really sure about this next step that I had to do and this person that I had to confront. But I think the other thing, I mean, you kind of have these out of body moments as well. Um, I wouldn't consider myself like in general or particularly uh like brave individual. Um, but I think you just have some moments in your life where it's like, 
it's not even you like you're you're not even really there like something else is going on that puts you in that situation and you react in that sort of way but it's interesting that you you bring it up because I mean in terms of the writing of the story this was something with Sayward that we went back and forth with from the beginning Um, this is the first time that I've really injected myself into a piece and it made me deeply uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think as journalists, we're sort of trained to never put yourself in the story. Yeah. Um, and so when I was asked, or it was sort of, it became clear at some point that like, it's going to be necessary to do this, to move the story forward. There was a lot of um, internal grappling that I had to do. Well, yeah. And it must've been all the more uncomfortable that the piece starts with you know, uh, basically a little first person vignette with you where there's a bit of despair in terms of hitting a roadblock in terms of the information you're looking to find. And mm-hmm. and then you do through serendipity find someone who has seen these women and could tell you a whole bunch. So it's just like that was a, this is just an example of I think it, it was really effective to kind of set the stage of here we are, here you are in this moment of almost. I don't know, you just not not desperation, but you were just like dejected, I guess is the best way to say it. And then then you get a lead and then it's like, okay, now we're off to the races. Yeah, I mean, that was actually I have to give the credit to Sayward for that, because when I sat down to write and I gave myself last September after I came back from Istanbul, like a three week period to just sit at home in Greece and to just write it all out. And I was like, okay, beginnings and ends are the hardest. So we're just going to forget about that right now. And we're just going to write the middle. So it was easy to write sort of what happened in Greece and the reporting in Afghanistan and a a little bit what happened in Turkey as well. And I was talking with Sayward and I was like, I just, I have no idea where to start this story. She was like, well, you should start it in the ice cream shop. I was like, okay, well, isn't that like, you know, this is a murder investigation and we're starting in an ice cream shop. I don't know, is that like too superficial? Or the fact that I'm going to have to talk about myself, is that somehow disrespectful to the main characters of this story, which are Fahima, Rabia, and Farzana, and the, the women that I want to put, you know, first and forward in, in this story, not myself. I, I could understand at some point that that was going to be what was most helpful for the piece. So I swallowed a bit my my pride and just sort of, wrote it in that way. And it's funny because ahead of this call, I went back and I read like the very first drafts that I wrote um, to see how much they have changed over time in sort of this final editing process. Uh, and we definitely refined it quite a lot. So what you read like today, I guess the piece is coming out, uh, is very different from what was originally written. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love uh, hearing, it's almost like, you know, there's like a flow chart where you ask yourself a certain question. Like, you know, it could be like the first person flow chart. Like, you know, it's you are asking a series of questions and it's gonna be like, do I belong? Essentially, do I belong here? OK, but why do I still belong here? OK, maybe I do. And then you go all the way down is like some people might come at it the wrong way. We're like, you know what? I'm going to be in it from the start. And that's where it might be a disservice to the story. But it sounds like you did a lot of a lot of thinking on that. Be like, OK for the purposes of this story and to get people to are hooked and to get people to keep scrolling and turning the digital page, this is a device that I can use to full effectively get people like into the narrative so they can really learn about this story. Yeah. I I think it was a bit 
more like that because I mean, I, I remember the f- original conversations that I had with Sayward after, you know, she agreed to to take on the story for the atavist. And I because she was saying a bit from the beginning, like, oh, it could be interesting, you know, to have you as part of the story. And I remember, I think, like the first deck, like the, the, one of the first like edited edited decks that we had was like a, a journalist, like I forget exactly the phrasing, but somehow something about the journalist of the story, like taking up the reins of the police. And I just felt like, you know, that wave of shame that that goes across (laughs) your body. And I was just like, no, no, it's too much. I think also because the nature of the story when it comes to talking about women, talking about refugees, talking about Afghanistan, like these are not always topics that are sort of just held up on their own. They always seem to be filtered through something else. And I was really wary of trying as much as possible to not filter it through um, my own gaze, I guess. Uh, But of course, you know, like with Sayward over the course of, of talking through, you know, how we're going to write the story and organize the story and all of this, it became clear that uh, I would have to inject myself just a little bit. And I hope that it's not, uh, I hope that I found the right balance in all of this because, yeah, it's it's not obviously it's not about me. Yeah, no, I think you do that do that brilliantly, and um, and and to to back up a little bit, I, I sometimes like kind of charting the 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 journey of of like the piece itself, and that you know, always starts mm-hmm. with how you get access, how you find the story, and ultimately how you digested into a pitch that would be acceptable to someone on the other side, uh, being Sayward in this case. So like, what was, you know, how did you arrive at the story? And then what did the the pitch look like? Like I said, in the beginning, or as we were talking about this region of Evros between Greece and Turkey. So this has historically been uh, a very common point of migration, um, actually so much so that until 2009, there were still landmines on the border. Um, and that was actually like the most common or one of the most common cause of, of, of death. I can hear my Kyla, my fact checker's voice now in my head where I'm like, okay, everything has to be super correct as I'm talking. <laughs> and so it's always been this, this important point of, of movement and of, of migration into Europe, but never really has gotten the same amount of press as the Mediterranean Sea, um, especially with what goes on in Greece, on the islands, in Lesbos. Um, and so when I first moved to Greece in 2017, um, I heard about this region and I was like, oh, that's really fascinating and interesting. This is such a historically important point and there aren't a lot of people reporting. So I started going up there um, and started doing a lot of reporting on pushbacks, which is an illegal practice that, again, I hear my fact checker's voice, that the Greek government categorically denies doing, but um, there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. A pushback is basically when someone comes into a country, uh, they're legally allowed to ask for asylum, and then depending on their case, they can be turned back to their country if they're deemed to not you know, um, fit the standards or the quotas of, of an asylum seeker. Uh, instead, what happens on this border is that people are uh, pushed back into Turkey without um, ever being processed. And this happens, uh, it's been happening for years. It's, it's very well documented. And so I started doing a lot of reporting on this. Um, and I was going up to Evros pretty regularly from Athens 
a few times a year. And so I had a lot of contacts up there. And I was up there in 2018. I think it was late October or early November 2018. And I'm talking with some of my sources in villages. And they're like, well, didn't you hear about this murder? And I was like, what murder? Up until that point, like, I mean, there are a lot of people who die on this crossing, but it's often they die either from drowning in the river because it's a, a river border that they cross or they, you know, they die from hypothermia. There are a lot of car accidents or people who walk along the train tracks um, and then they get crushed by a train. But murder is not something that happens. Um, actually, it literally hadn't happened in that region in, I think, about 20 years and so that really piqued my interest because it seemed like a huge deal. In Greece in general, there aren't necessarily a lot of homicides. There are an increasing amount of femicides, but still like it's a pretty small number compared to other countries. So usually every time that there's a murder, it kind of like makes the news. And this hadn't. And so I started doing a little digging. And I went to go see um, Pavlos Pavlidis, who's the forensic scientist who I've interviewed many times. Uh, and he kind of you know, he had done the autopsy and he was like, yeah, well, we have these three women, um, but we don't really know much about them or really anything about them. Because one of the big problems with dead bodies that turn up in Evros is that people don't have their papers uh, or they don't have any documentation. And so it becomes impossible to ID them. So in the beginning, it was just this extraordinary murder mystery. And the, the mystery in the first place was like, well, who are these three people? They didn't even know where they were from. And so that really interested me, and I and I wanted to start, you know, digging into that. And I remember I I went and I pitched Say Word. Um, so I should pause and say that, like, obviously, for every journalist uh, in the U.S. who does like long form narrative work, like the dream is to work with Say Word, and the dream is to be published in the Atavist. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wrote to her with with this pitch uh that was really i went back and i read it and i was like oh sarah <laughs> like you have no information here like i was just like there's this amazing story but you know we don't know anything who they are what happened and i kind of contextualize it with what i just said about what's going on in evros and say word i mean what i really like about her amongst many things uh, is that she gives really good feedback even if it's negative and she was like well you know you don't we don't know the who, the why, the where, <laughs> like there are all these really big missing questions. So like uh, we're going to have to pass because, you know, you don't really show us how you can make a dent in the story. And I don't know what like weird character flaw I have, but I, it was obviously a rejection and I didn't take it as a rejection. I was like, <laughs> right. So I just have to make a dent <laughs> and then I'll come back and then she'll accept the story. So I basically spent like the next year, trying to make a dent. And in the meantime, I also applied for a bunch of funding, got rejected from I don't know how many grants until I got one grant from a foundation here in Greece called the Incubator for Media Education and Development, which is funded by the Stavros Nyarchos Foundation. And they gave me an extremely generous budget to be able to report on this story. And I went back to Sayward at that point, the police had made some headway. They identified who the women were and where they came from, which was Afghanistan. And I was like, okay, I'm going to work this story backwards, like starting in Afghanistan, traveling to Turkey, to how they ended up in Greece. There was a great character um, that I found as well, who was the lead investigator on, those, on the investigation, Zaharula Tsirigoti, 
who, I mean, is just like a total firecracker of a woman and was also the highest ranking female officer in the Hellenic police. Um, So there were, you know, a couple of things that came together. And then a year, almost a year from when I got that initial rejection that I did not take as a rejection, uh, (laughs) they accepted the piece. And then, you know, I started working on it like much more seriously. And you've alluded to having having this grant and in the the reporting of this piece taking something like three and a half years. Uh, So were you completely basically subsidized by this grant or were you doing some other things too to, you know, to, so you could afford to work on this piece for so long? Oh, well, I mean, I, I should say this wasn't like, I wasn't working on it full time for three and a half years. Yeah, Cause yeah. then I think I would not be calling you from an apartment. I would, <laughs> I would not have been able to pay my rent. Um, <laughs> so I was working on this on and off for, for three and a half years. And there were moments where, you know, the reporting was much more intense. And then other times where there would just be like a huge low. Obviously, of course, like COVID really had an impact uh, on how I could do a lot of the reporting. But the IMED grant, basically, they subsidized all of the expenses. So I didn't get paid by them for the reporting. I got paid by the Atavist for the piece that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, but they subsidized like working with fixers, traveling, like transportation costs, translation, everything, which was amazing. And really the biggest cost is uh, working with fixers because, of course, like especially if you're working in a place like Afghanistan where it's more dangerous, uh, people very rightfully so ask for a higher fee. Um, and ba- And I was able to have everything very generously covered uh, and for two years, which was like really, I, I, I couldn't have actually done done it without that or I could have done it and I would be bankrupt I guess <laughs> I remember when I was talking to someone who works primarily in audio and as somebody who works and she was somebody who works more behind the mic as a producer and it's a very big umbrella term what a producer does and because they can do everything from booking to editing to sometimes doing some reporting blah 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 uh, my point is uh, like how for people who might not be familiar with with fixers, like, like mm-hmm. what does a fixer do? You know, you know, there might be, you know, translating obviously, but what else, what, what else is a fixer doing? I imagine it's a big blanket term of what, what they, what they do and how they serve, you know, you in this case. Yeah. And I think that's a really good question. And I think we could also spend a long time interrogating the word fixer uh, because it's, I think within like the hierarchy of journalism, they're often kind of the lowest paid and sort of, you know, they don't really get a lot of credit. And especially when you're working in countries like in Turkey or like in Afghanistan, I mean, the people that I worked with, first of all, I would say, well, there were two of them who were already very established journalists, like with their own so Huega is one of them, and then Tabshir, uh, who gets a pseudonym in my piece, um, he's the other journalist that uh, you know that that really helped me so much. I mean, they they do an impressive amount. So it it depends. I mean, you can hire and work with a fixer who helps you on the ground, someone who just does translation. But for me, it was I really felt like I was working with a colleague, and I was really lucky in the case of both Tabshir uh, and Huega, to be working with people who were really invested in the piece um, and really invested in the story and really invested in 
figuring out what happened to Fahima and her daughters and getting some some justice for them. As you progress through your reporting, you know, there there's always this moment too where, you know, you kind of land someone who's like a really great interview or you're not even aware of just how great they're going to be, but like you leave that interview like really charged, like, oh my God, like that was, that was amazing. And I imagine like the times you were talking with that investigator, the firecracker, you were talking about like once, once you had her, you were probably like, oh my God, this thing kind of like a firework kind of really, really expanded the piece and blew it up for you in the best possible way. Oh, for sure. I mean, I feel like everyone was a character, honestly, like everyone had such a big personality or I mean, even someone like Pavlos, who is a man of few words, like even he, how he looks in his morgue, like the whole thing. I mean, he's such a a character as well. Um, But Zaharula, for sure. I mean, she's like my favorite kind of woman. I mean, she's just like a chain smoking, tells it like it is like (laughs) to the left you know, just hardcore, passionate, romantic person. Um, it was really moving to see her as well, uh, how how touched she is. I mean, this is something in general that I really love in Greece. So people are really not afraid of the full spectrum of human emotion and are able to go really deep. So it was quite, you know, I've never had an interview with a police officer, even an ex-police officer, where, you know, they start crying when they're describing a case and they're describing a situation. And I mean, she put so, she was so dedicated to this for so long. Um, And I'm really appreciative of, you know, all of the time that she gave me and all of the personal information that she gave me uh, was a huge help for the case. And I guess the other really big interview was also with Mohammed, uh, you know, this family member of Saeed in the ice cream shop. That was just also such like a, I mean, he himself, how he looks, which I couldn't really describe in the piece, but he has such a a look uh, and the whole situation where we were, the ice cream shop, the whole thing was so uh, cinematic. And that definitely felt like, oh, shit, like, okay, this is this is a moment. This is something big that's about to happen and be revealed. A little while ago, you were saying, you know, beginnings and endings are are have are uniquely challenging. You know, you did a lot of the writing at first like doing the the middle and that's where a lot of times like a a piece can sag you know because a lot of people put a lot of a lot of uh energy into the beginning and the end and then the middle middle tends to slow down sometimes but that's where you kind of put some who put 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 your energy uh so i'd never heard anyone really speak about it like that where you're like you know i'm just gonna work in the guts of this thing so um you just walk us through that and how you were you know you were just like you know i'm this is where i'm gonna start my work or at least do the bulk of it before i bookend this in a in a crafty way yeah, well, I guess I have my dad to thank for this because he would always tell me in like when I was in middle school and high school and studying for tests and all of this, he would always just be like, just do the easiest thing first. Like when you see, when you look like read all the questions on the test and then just point out the ones that are the easiest and start with those because then you'll feel a bit confident and then you can move on to the hard ones as opposed to doing it just like, you know, from page one or trying to go with the hardest ones. So because I had done already a lot of reporting and writing of that reporting on pushbacks and on the general situation in Evros, it was the easiest thing for me to start writing the portion in Greece. 
Um, and so I was like, okay, well, obviously I'll start with that. And then I'll get a little confident because I think when you report on something like this, it's very easy to get in your head, which I did many times and to be like, I'm never going to be able to write this. I'm never going to be able to do justice to this story. Like I should just, I don't know, become an accountant or something and like completely forget, forget about writing or journalism. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I don't need to make this any harder for myself than it already is. I'll just start with Greece, write that. And then once I started writing that, moved on to the reporting that I had done in Afghanistan with Huega, because that was also easy to start writing. And then a bit later, I started working the beginning and the ending, which also like really started to come together in this last month. Yeah, I was reading a craft essay on on writing, and it was by Francine Prose. It's in a Tin House uh, anthology, and um, you know she writes that writers are creatures who function best when we recall the writing process in tranquility. And so, for you, in those moments of tranquility, and we kind of touched upon it at the very start of our conversation, you know what it, what is the writing process for you like when you're when you're alone by yourself in the dark? <laughs> in that moment of <laughs> tranquility as you're trying to crack the code of a piece, especially one of this nature? Uh, I mean, honestly, I think it's like one of severe disassociation. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying because I, fe- I knew there was going to be a question like this. And I was trying to recall <laughs> like those three weeks because there was a real chunk of time where I like completely cleared my schedule and was like, I'm just going to sit down and write. I'm going to give myself these three weeks and then well, I don't have any other time after that. So I have to do it now. I think I kind of blacked out, honestly, like I just <laughs> sat, wrote it. I don't really remember <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of like the process or the feelings that I that I had about it. But, you know, it's a bit difficult for me to consider myself a writer. Like, I don't know, it's not when I think I, I have friends who are who are real, what, what I would say in quotes, like real writers who write novels that, you know, get written up in the New York Times and craft these whole worlds and write these beautiful sentences and come up with these extravagant characters and just have a real depth of imagination. And I've always felt like what I'm most interested in in the journalism process is really just talking to people um, and hearing the story and sort of pulling the threads and putting together this puzzle, the writing is usually for me the afterthought. Uh, and so it's, it's yeah, I don't even know if I would consider myself to be a writer. I just kind of, I write because that is the medium through which it's easiest to tell these sorts of stories. And because I don't, you have a very nice voice for radio. I don't have as nice, nice <laughs> of a voice for radio. So I write, but it's not, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a bit, it's a, it's a complicated relationship that I have also with with this identity. And do you have in like it just in your experience, you know, what what has to be in place for you like at your workstation so you can at least, you know, feel like you're you know the most ready to start writing or continue writing or kind of grease the skids and get some momentum going. Oof. I mean, it's awful. I'll just wake up. <laughs> Really, it's I wake up, I will maybe like put on pants with like a zipper and a button, but usually I'll just like put on 
I'll stay in pajamas or like be in workout clothes because I'll like try and trick myself into being like, you're going to work out later because that's good for writing. Um, <laughs> I'll have my glass of tap water, a huge cup of coffee, and I will just drink coffee until like noon and, and not eat. Uh, and then I'll just write. It's really, as I'm saying it, I'm like, God, that's so unhealthy. But that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of how it goes. And I'll write, I have to start from the morning, like I have to wake up and it has to be the first thing that I start doing. I'm not one of those people who can, you know, I, I wish, especially because I live in Greece and it would be nice if I could, you know, be one of those people who, oh yeah, goes to the beach in the morning and swims first and then comes back and no, no, no. It's very utilitarian, very unromantic. I just get myself up, put myself on an extremely uncomfortable chair because I also still, after all these years of working from home, haven't gotten a, <laughs> a desk chair and just start writing and that's it. That's great. I, I was going to ask you like what like percentage of your day is spent in sweatpants? <laughs> I'm in them right now. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> you know, at what point do you feel like, you know, over the course of your reporting that you feel like you have enough to start writing? I was so anxious about the writing process for this because at, just the reporting itself was so overwhelming and it was really start, stop, start, stop. Um, and I just felt like there were so many moments where things could just go terribly wrong and sort of the whole thing would fall out from under me. And, you know, I would get, I, I think the sort of imposter syndrome that I know a lot of writers and journalists talk about on your podcast, and I'm doing it now, but I just felt like someone at some point was just going to call my bluff and be like, you have no business doing any of this, what you're reporting on. And so I... I I was so hesitant about starting to write until I had enough of the reporting done. And at one point it was just like, well, I mean, it's, it's never going to end up in a perfect conclusion. Um, you know, the person that I think should be on trial or at least questioned by the police, that looks like it's not really going to be happening. So you just have to sit down and start writing. Um, and Sayward was good for this also to like be helpful and tell me like, okay, start now. And then the piece, so I, I wrote most of it in September, 2021. Um, and then it just kind of lagged for a while because there was no real conclusion or ending. And I was like, if only I could just speak to Mirajuddin, who was Fahima's alleged uh, boyfriend. If only I could just speak to him, but it, you know, and police at one point had actually a few months later, uh, you know, had actually arrested him in the north, uh, and then he like slipped out of police custody. Um, and then in March 2022, I got a call from a, a source who's like, well, we have him, he's been arrested, um, so you can go interview him in prison. And that was, you know, the the thing I was looking for, I think, to kind of tie the piece together, because at no point otherwise did I have a clear idea of what happened from when Fahima and her daughters left Istanbul and crossed into Evros. And obviously, as a reader, that's something that you really want to know. And that's something that I wanted to give people as well. And and also for these women, like what were their final moments like in, in their life? And so I... 
organized, which in Greece, I guess I should say the other thing is like, it's not very easy to work as a journalist here. And it's only gotten harder in the last few years. I think now the country is ranked 108th uh, when it comes to the Reporters Without Borders uh, Freedom of Press Index Fund, which, you know, for the so-called birthplace of democracy is is quite shameful. Um, and also when it comes to, I mean, there's no FOIA in Greece, Freedom of Information Act, uh, when you're trying to get any sort of public records, uh, well, they're not public, they don't make them public. So if you're trying to get any sort of information, it's quite difficult. Same with organizing a prison interview. So it was like a whole couple of weeks of organizing everything and getting letters and all of this. And it was a prison in the north of Greece, in a town called Komotini. Um, and I was actually the first journalist ever to go to this prison. Mm. Um, and it was funny because, well, not funny, actually. It was sort of, well, it was dark comedy, I guess, like a lot of moments in reporting this piece where uh, I fly from Athens. At the time, I wasn't even living in Athens. I was on an island. And I go just organize everything to do it just in one day because to find uh, a Dari translator who could come from Thessaloniki, there were a lot of moving parts to organize because, you know, Ajuddin only speaks uh, Dari, so I, and I couldn't interview him otherwise, and to get clearance for the translator. So I'm on the airplane from Athens to Alexandrupoli, which takes about an hour, and we fly all the way to Alexandrupoli, and then the pilot says something in Greek, and I'm half asleep, so I don't really understand what he's saying. And then the plane just turns around. We're literally over Alexandrupoli. Like, I look out the window and I can see it. <laughs> the plane mm-hmm. turns around and flies back to Athens, supposedly because of bad weather. Uh, and then it became a whole, you know, to reorganize everything to go for the next day because it was a very comp- like very specific time period that I was allowed to, to do the interview. Um, but anyway, after I did all of that. And I had that interview, then, you know, I was able to write that section. uh, And then the piece really started to come together. A moment ago, you spoke about how the reporting was a bit overwhelming. And granted, like you weren't working on this, like, uh, you know, every day for three and a half years. So it was a lot of, you know, piecemeal reporting and then putting putting it all together. So over the course of the reporting, how did you work through that overwhelm? And then how did you keep everything organized and straight? So when it was game time, you were you were ready to like kind of hit the ground running with all the information you gathered? Uh, yeah, well, I was terrified of the fact-checking process from the beginning. <laughs> 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 so I had everything like as much as I could. I'm sure Kyla will be like, I could have done a better job, I think, with with labeling some of my of my recordings. But I tried to be like as fastidious as possible in gathering as much information. And also, when I wrote the piece, like I had already, like every sentence basically was footnoted for the fact checking process. Um, and then, in terms of managing, the question was about managing the stress of reporting, or I guess just the the overwhelm of it. Yeah, and the, and the stress just and then. Yeah, making sure that you're capable of, you know, accessing the right information, you know, like, okay, I'm in this scene, I gotta, you know, find find that information and that, you know, just that thing. So you don't get totally just like blindsided and just overwhelmed with the glut of information you have. Yeah, well, I mean, I I will say, first of all, it was not easy to get a lot of information. So every interview felt like a very long, drawn out 
process. And so that was kind of helpful. Um, and people in general were very generous with their time. It was interesting. Even in Turkey, when I was interviewing smugglers who like obviously weren't going to tell me anything, they were still down to like sit with me for two hours and I could keep asking the same questions over and over again. Um, but I guess on a person, I mean, I think there are two layers to this. It's like the professional one, which, you know, how do you deal with all of this varying sources of information and putting all these puzzle pieces together. And, and I think it really is just patience and time and also talking through the reporting uh, with your colleagues and trying to see like where the gaps are and, and putting things together. Uh, and then on a personal level, uh, it's just therapy, honestly, because like I, I had never done any sort of reporting like this. And I don't think it's normal also like to stick your fingers so deep into other people's lives and to be interviewing people who you suspect of of murder I mean it's a very strange feeling all of this and I didn't really have the emotional tools to be able to deal with that so I got help from someone who could uh, help me find those for myself given that you know the sensitive nature of the story and how it just it, it, how emotionally taxing it, it it was and is um you know what um just like what what kind of reporting were or stories were you drawn to before this and was you know was this one really something that that tested you in a way that you hadn't tested yourself before yeah i mean i think i've i've had been doing a lot of stories on migration and refugee rights in Greece. So, you know, I've heard a lot of very difficult stories over the years that like really break your heart. And a lot of interviews that I've done in refugee camps um, or even situations of like, you know, I've been on the border in Evros when like a family has crossed and, you know, I've held a woman in, in my arms, like just after she's crossed. So you, you live like these very intense moments with people. So I had some kind of understanding of like the larger context around what it means to leave your home for honestly, for whatever reason you choose to leave it like that to me doesn't seem to be the the important thing. Um, but there were definitely moments. Um, I think one of the hardest things for me to do was when I was doing the reporting with Huega. And she was in Mazari Sharif, and I'm here in my flat in Athens, and I'm video calling with Hadila, who's the older sister of Fahima. Uh, and Hadila didn't know that her sister and her two nieces had been murdered. Uh, she thought that they had just drowned. And, you know, I have to be the one, because that's the whole reason that I'm talking to her, is to see what kind of information she could possibly have that the police didn't didn't get. I had to be the one to sort of tell her what had actually happened. And that's not a situation that I've really uh, ever been in before. Um, and also a couple of times with Abdul, the uh, husband of, of Fahima, that was really trying as well, uh, because obviously he's a single father. So his, his children come with him uh, wherever he goes. And when we did our interviews, um, he hadn't told his children that their mother and sisters were were dead, uh, not even that they were murdered. Of course, that's like overwhelming information for children, but uh, that that they just 
yeah, that they weren't alive anymore. Um, and there were a lot of moments in the reporting where I just felt horrible about what I was doing and thinking like, is, is this really worth it? Like the story that I'm trying to tell, like there are so many, there are so many broken and heartbroken people within just these three lives. Um, and who am I to like come in and, and try and figure out what happened? I hear what you're saying too. And it, sometimes it can feel like, especially when, uh, of a story that is so heavy of this nature that it's also like, it's, you almost feel mildly, if not sometimes more than mildly, like exploitative of their story. Like it's so sensitive. It's just like, well, you know, what right do I have to kind of come in as this third party to come in tell your story for I don't know for my career and stuff of that nature and it's like you know I I can tell it comes from a, a good place for you but sometimes I, I feel like if I'm ever doing a story of this nature and I've done one not not quite like that but very sensitive and it was I, I just felt sometimes in some ways icky I'm like should I be even doing this this doesn't feel right I don't know if you wrestle with that at all of course. And I mean, I think there's room for all of those feelings together, right? Like, yeah, sure, it came from a good place. But like, does that really matter? I don't know. Like, it's also, uh, there, there are other layers to this as well. And some people might see it differently. Um, but I was always very, like hyper aware, uh, I think the whole time of, of what I was doing. And, and there's a lot in the piece that I don't include because it's just not necessary to, to the reporting, um, or, or to how I, to how I tell the story. But I think this is something that a lot of journalists grapple with. I mean, this is inherently like an exploitative business that we're in. I mean, the number of times that I've had interviews, not for this piece, but just in general with, with refugees and migrants. I mean, I remember interviewing one, one guy from, Afghanistan who had been pushed back like 15 times and we're talking and he's just like well what are you going to do for me like what does it matter if I tell you my story I've been telling journalists my story and nothing has happened like my he's he was so desperate that he was telling me like I'm just going to commit suicide because I don't see any other option with how my life is supposed to go and like that's very that's very real and I think I don't know as there are a couple of layers here, like how much responsibility we have as individual journalists, oftentimes like overworked and underpaid in an exploitative capitalistic business that's, you know, that really thrives on on these sorts of, of stories um, and how much responsibility is with the industry itself. But with this particular story, the thing that I just kept coming back to because I was thinking of it in the context of femicides in Greece, which unfortunately in the last few years have been on the rise. But every time that there has been a femicide, whether it's a Greek woman or a foreign woman, it's gotten rightfully so a lot of attention and a lot of press. And there's been a level of justice for the victim, uh, whether that's her story being told or, you know, the case being brought to to justice in a criminal or in a legal sense. And it really pissed me off that there were three women. It was a mother and her two daughters, a 17-year-old and, and a 13-year-old who weren't given that same opportunity, largely from where I was standing, felt like because they're 
brown because they're refugees, because they're from Afghanistan, which is a country that, you know, despite the fact that it's been in war for nearly two decades, like Afghans are not treated as refugees in the same way that people, for example, from Syria or Ukraine are. Um, and it, it was really um, frustrating for me to see that lack of attention on a story that really just deserves much more attention. Does, you know, finishing a piece of this nature, does it leave you more energized or, or drained in the end? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I've been working on this for so long and it feels so strange now to put it out in the world. Um, on Sunday, I got like the layout for the piece with all the illustrations. And it was the first time in reporting it that I cried, um, to see the faces of these, I mean, I keep saying women, but it's really like a mother and her two girls, uh, and to see their faces in front of me. And the illustrator did such an amazing job. Like I was looking into their eyes and I was just like, this is, I don't know. It's, 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 I'm so happy in a lot of ways that um, they're finally getting their story told and that there is some sort of modicum of justice that comes at the end, at the end of the piece. Um, I don't think I've really processed yet. Uh, and I'm sort of, I think like most freelancers just constantly working. So I have like quite a slate of, of assignments for the next few months. Um, but it has made me, yeah, rethink sort of what kind of stories I want to tell in the future and, and how I want to tell those stories as well and in what format and what medium sort of where do I see my, my place. That was, you asked a very specific question. I gave a very roundabout answer, but I, I think mm -hmm. I just kind of feel everything at once. And another kind of writer type question too, and it, it sounds like you can speak to this I, it, just based on the, uh, on what we've been talking about is like, there's always those moments in a, in a draft or a piece or even in the research and the reporting of a piece where you just, you just hit a wall and you just, you have that doubt and you start doubting yourself uh, but when it comes to the writing and you know you've got the information and you're starting to doubt yourself and you get that imposter syndrome that you alluded to, you know, how do you how have you over the years written through it? Because, you know, you just got to finish. How do you write through that doubt? Oh, um, I don't think you can write through it. I think you have to go and like visit the little like monkey doubt like I really see it in my head like my inner critic as like a monkey with like two huge symbols it's just like crashing his symbols together <laughs> and you just gotta this is gonna sound a little kooky but like you have to go and visit that little place in your mind and just give it a little attention but not let it sort of take over the process um and that's maybe easier said than done, but there were just moments where I was like, okay, monkey, like, right, you, you don't need to be here right now. Like, you can come at the end of the day and, like, doubt everything that you've written um, or at the end of the editing process, but, like, right now I need you to, like, go back in your box for a while. Um, so that's, that sounds a little insane when I, when I put it like that, but that's, I love yeah, it. I think that's how I, that's how I managed it. <laughs> Well, let's see, uh, Sarah. I, what I 
what I always love doing to bring these conversations down for a landing is asking the guest for a recommendation for the listeners of some kind. That can be just anything you're excited about. So I'd extend that to you. What, what would you recommend for the listeners out there that, that you're excited about? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give two if that's okay. Oh, yeah. um, Cause I think the first is whenever I read a very intense piece uh, that's very sad and depressing. I'm just kind of like, well, okay, great. Like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to encourage your listeners if they feel so moved by Fahima's story and Rabi and Farzana's story. Um, you know, Afghanistan is uh, in an extreme, like, political and human rights and humanitarian catastrophe at the moment. So um, I got some recommendations from some Afghan friends told me that the best charity to donate to that's doing really good work um, with Afghans both in Afghanistan and Afghan refugees outside of the country is the International Rescue Committee, the IRC. So if you feel so moved to give a donation. Um, And then I guess the other thing, because the piece starts with an epigraph from Kapka Kasabova, who's this amazing Bulgarian author and really uh, was kind of an inspiration also for me to start visiting Evros in the first place. Um, I would recommend her book, Border. Uh, That's Border by Kapka Kasabova. It's really fantastic uh, and just a very illuminating uh, look into this small corner of the world. Yeah, and that that epigraph, it, it reads, Just by being there, the border is an invitation. Come on, it whispers. Step across this line, if you dare. Yeah, I, it felt like a very, I mean, I, when I read it the first time and when I started writing the piece, I think that was actually one of the first things that I put on the paper as sort of like my talisman to have it there. Well, fantastic. Well, this piece was an incredible feat of writing and reporting, and it was a pleasure to get to speak to you and unpack it a bit and how you go about the work, Sarah. So thanks so much for the work, and thanks for carving out the time to talk about it. Yeah, well, thank you, Brendan, for your curiosity. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to speak with me and, and actually all the other journalists and writers that you're talking to. It's really interesting what you do. All right. Whew. Thank you to Sarah, Sayward, and you, the listener. Couldn't do it without you, CNFers. My Spotify wrapped for the podcast was great. 76% growth on the platform. Pretty crazy. I'll probably share some of those images in Instagram because that's your devotion to this little podcast that could. I'd like to show you the results of your attention. Valuable as that is. Biggest thing I did this week, I re-rearranged my studio back to its original footprint. I felt too crammed in the corner of the new layout. I like this idea of having my bookcase behind me in the event that I'd be interviewed on screen. Real cool, I know. But I like where I'm at better. A little more elbow room. Sometimes you get back together with the one you left. I'm sorry, baby. I can change. No news on the book proposal, and my reporting stalled somewhat. Been hard to... That's more or less a me problem. It's like inertia. In this case, repertorial inertia. Making a call feels like putting 315 pounds on the bar to squat. And I can't squat that shit right now. Maybe by the end of 2023, if all goes to plan. Point being, objects not in motion like to not stay in motion. But I made contact with a source I've been trying to reach since May... 
spoke for an hour. He gave me three other crucial phone numbers, though. So there's a little momentum. And now I, I'm eager to keep making those calls, like Jeff Perlman said a few episodes back. Call, 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 call. This wasn't a super illuminating conversation. It was it was very good, but some are better than others. But it's good. It's it's a great first step. I find my first conversations with people sometimes aren't that great because they're kind of feeling each other out. They're definitely feeling me out to make sure I'm not some sort of vampire. We kind of circle the top of the drain, and each ensuing interview gets tighter and tighter, narrower and narrower, until we get to the gold. In any case, point is, setting the bar low, making that one call, and getting something out of it, that starts to spin the flywheel. Soon you're wanting to get to what's next, and who's next, and what will come of it. Then the anxiety starts to abate because you're filling the well with all this information. I wake at one in the morning, just about every morning, in a relative panic about being able to deliver. And with each of these calls, I'm like, okay, this is new ground. I'm building the mosaic. But it's hard to see the forest for the trees when you haven't bothered planting anything. And you're like, shit, I don't even have a forest to get lost in. I need to build a forest, to plant a forest, to to, uh, sequester this anxiety. And that happens one call at a time. Feeling good. For the first time in a long time, I'm feeling kind of good. All right, that's it. Stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.